You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Mike Brown is the Richard and Barbara Rosenberg Professor of Planetary Astronomy at the California Institute of Technology. His new book is How I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming. Thank you for joining me, Mike. Oh, it's my pleasure. Your third survey, you did have to kind of pull yourself back to science, and, and that, was, that wasn't easy for you, was it? The, the third survey was, because the third survey is the one that really finally found all the very exciting things out there. That was also the beginning of an exciting part of your personal life, too. Beginning of an exciting part. Let's see. What's I see? Even I have sometimes have a hard time remembering which one was where when. Um, the beginning of that third survey actually started. There was there was a year of that third survey that ran, um, where we first started finding some some very exciting things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was I was newly married. I was I was still working hard, but but uh, but but my wife was was uh, was very understanding because she actually works harder than me, so it made it easier. Um, <laughs> so she was always happy if I would stay a little bit late in working so she could even get more work done. And uh, we found some some of the really best exciting things. Um, well, tell us about what you found and how. And, and because it's your computer programming uh, chops, some of the things you had to do with it were pretty interesting, I thought. The, the, the one that, um, that I think uh, even the people who I work most closely with actually don't appreciate because I, I, I did all this um, just in the in the privacy of my own room in my computer is that the one the one really interesting thing that we discovered um in that very like uh a week a week a, a month after finally getting the surf third survey running um we found this one object that we almost missed and we almost missed it because it was so far away that it was moving so slowly that the computer almost didn't find it and it almost didn't find it simply because i had a software switch saying if it's moving this slow, it, it can't be real. This is the fastest, this is the slowest moving object that you should even bother looking for, computer. And I had to do that because otherwise I'd be overwhelmed with things that weren't actually moving but just jiggled it a little bit. But this object was so interesting. This was the object uh, Sedna. And Sedna is, to my mind, actually, the, the most important scientific discovery that, that I've made in all this time. Um, Sedna is so far away from the sun. It's so far away from the planets that it's, it's, it's a, an object in a new region of space that we didn't know anything about before. And we're still trying to understand exactly what Sedna is telling us, but one of the things it must be telling us is that it's, it's leftover. It's a fossil record from the, the birth of the solar system itself. We don't know yet how to read this fossil record, but when we can find more of these things, we'll learn about the earliest, earliest conditions of, of everything. You, you said you think that this is maybe the result of the interaction between the sun and other stars as the planets are I, forming. I think that's what it is. That's, that's to me, the, the, this is a point where I, I have a hypothesis. I do mm-hmm. have a hypothesis. My hypothesis is, is that when the sun formed, that there were many other stars very close to it. It would have been an exciting place to, if, you're, if you were on the Earth, except there was no Earth at the time. Um, but if you looked up in your non-existent sky, you would see... You would see uh, hundreds, maybe even thousands of stars brighter than any of the brightest stars that we currently see in the sky. It would have been just spectacular. In this time period, all these stars were so close by, they could have been stripping off 
parts of the solar system, things in what is now the Kuiper Belt, and pulling them into these oblong orbits farther away from the planets than they are now. All of those stars have slowly drifted away from the sun, and we, don't, we can't even find them anymore because they're gone uh, so long ago. But they have left this fossil imprint of their earliest time. One of the things that comes out of this book, I think, then it's very interesting, is the importance of teaching science when you're doing science. Because you're, you're, the, you're, the classes you taught, and you were talking about this, your Rocks for Jocks class uh, proved to be a, 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 an inspiration for you. I, I think it's, it's the Rocks for Jocks class, which, which at Caltech I like to call Earth Science for Eggheads, um, because that's what they are. Uh, that class, the other class I was teaching right when we discovered Sedna was, was on the formation of the solar system. And so, you know, I was primed as soon as I discovered that thing out there to start thinking about how it fit into this whole picture. It really, it makes a big difference. I think if, um, if I just sat here and spent all my time doing research and not teaching, uh, I would have a much more narrow perspective that, that wouldn't let me make those connections quite as fast. So it's, it really is uh, a, a very good system um, where a lot of our research happens with people who are also doing the, the teaching at that cutting edge, too. Now, was this around the time that you finally had to admit you lost the bet? It was. Actually, the, the, the discovery of Sedna was a year before that initial bet that I had um, came up. And so I had, I had another year of working that I, the bet was um, December 31st, 2004, somebody had to find a planet and nobody had found one yet. I had a year. So I worked really hard through that summer. And then when, when the summertime came, I realized, and by, by looking at Sedna, which was so far away and I almost missed, and also looking at all the other things we, we had found, I realized that there, there might be things further out that my software would have, would have missed um, because I had that cutoff. I couldn't, though, just take that cutoff out because I would be inundated with, with junk that the computer thought was moving. You know, every, every time you take a picture of a star, you get a little bit of a jump, a little bit of a jiggle, and the computer would say every single star in the sky was moving and was a planet, and I would, I would go crazy. Um, but, I, but I came up with a slightly better way of, of being able to refine exactly where everything was and pinpoint them down very precisely and look for very tiny movements. Even doing that, I was still overwhelmed um, with, with sometimes as many as, as 500 or 1,000 uh, things in a day that the computer said was moving that, that, that wasn't moving. But I realized that if I wanted to win this bet, which I desperately did, I had to find a way to find these more distant things that are, that are moving more slowly. So I rewrote all the software. I reanalyzed every single bit of data that I had ever taken, looking for just that one thing that was moving a little bit more slowly um, in hopes that by that December 31st, I would, I would find that planet. But you didn't, but you almost, you got an extension on your bet. Well, you? <laughs> it was December 31st, came and went, and, and I had lost. And I wrote email to my friend that I'd made the bet with, and I said, you know, I, you, you, you win. No planets. I, had, I hadn't gotten through all of the data that I had wanted to get through, um, but I had gotten through most of it. I had, gotten, I had, I had been slowed down a little, um, inadvertently, I think, by, by being distracted by the fact that, that my wife was now pregnant at the mm -hmm. time, too. So I, I had meant to spend all of November and December searching through the old data sets. And I will admit to having looked at, you know, 
baby name books and, and, and developmental biology books and teacher kid sign language books and, and all these things instead of sitting in my office pasted to the computer like I should have been. Now, um, however, y you did end up finding two things. And, and so tell us about uh, uh, a Santa and Easter Bunny. Well, so Santa was, um, Santa almost made the cut. Mm -hmm. uh, Santa, I found on uh, December 28th, this was when I was still working hard to win that bet. Mm -hmm. I was looking through the old data, and sure enough, there was, there was Santa right there. Santa was the brightest thing we'd ever found, um, and meaning that it's probably the biggest thing we'd ever found. And uh, we, even at the time, as with everything else, thought, wow, I wonder if it's bigger than, than Pluto. It turns out not to be. We, we very quickly found out a lot more about Santa. It has moons around it. And moons around it means you can weigh it very precisely. And it's only about a third the mass of Pluto. So we knew that that was nowhere close. Um, and that was that was my last hope for winning that bet. But the the even though I lost the bet on December 31st, I, I did go back to work um, because I still had more data that I hadn't finished analyzing yet because of that, that, that baby coming along. Um, and on January 5th, just a couple days after losing the bet, I was looking through old data, data from uh, about a year and a year and two months earlier. And, uh, and, and there it was on the screen. This was now the brightest thing we'd ever found, but it was also the slowest moving thing ever. I would not have found it without that new software to look for things that were moving so slowly. And it's moving so slowly because it's the most distant thing we had ever found. In fact, it's the most distant thing that humans have ever seen in the in the solar system. And coupling the brightest thing we had found with the most distant thing we'd ever found, usually when things get that far away, they get pretty faint. Sedna was so faint, it was almost hard to find. This thing was so bright, I knew instantly at that point that this thing was at least as big as Pluto, if not bigger. And uh, I, I wrote to my friend and said, hey, can I have a, 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 a five-day extension on that bet? And she said, absolutely. She was, she was happy to, uh, I didn't tell her what was going on, but I told her, I said, I'll, I'll get back to you. I just need that extension. Now, it's not often that we, that a former wrestler turned actor uh, comes into the world of astronomy, but... <laughs> It's true. So at this point, you know, we had, we always give these things when we find them, we give them nicknames. We mm -hmm. give them nicknames because we need something to, to call it amongst ourselves while we're doing those couple months long studies. So, so uh, uh, Sedna was, for example, the Flying Dutchman based on its ability to disappear all the time. Um, Dutch. Dutch. Dutch for short. Um, the, the one that we had found on December 28th we called Santa, seems very appropriate. We had been saving a special name for the first object we found that was bigger than Pluto. And um, we had, it, was, it was because uh, things out, new planets had always been called, hypothetical new planets have always been called Planet X, X for unknown or X for 10. Nibiru. Uh, or, or Nibiru. Um, <laughs> So we wanted something that started with an X, mm -hmm. and you know that's already getting hard on you. You're, you might be going to uh, to Aztec mythology at that point, but then that means you have to have some god that uh, that they sacrificed virgins to, which seems a little unsavory. So we, we wanted to keep the X. Uh, we needed mythology, and um, and we actually we really thought that there weren't enough um, planets named for women. You know, there's sort of Venus is it, and mm -hmm. that seems a little unfair. So we we wanted a a female mythological X, and when you put those three together, you're, you're left with no choice um, but to name your, your new planet Xena. And Xena, of course, is only 
TV mythology, not real mythology. But, you know, Pluto was named after a cartoon dog, so that seemed okay. <laughs> now, you, you discovered uh, Xena, and, and once you discovered this, um, you, you found that somebody else had found Santa. Well, there was a, there was one in between, mm-hmm. too. This is when the um, uh, I, I'm, I'm semi-convinced that uh, that 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 personal fertility and scientific fertility are are all all related. So first we found Santa, which was the biggest thing we'd ever found. Then we found uh, Xena, which was now the new biggest thing we'd ever mm-hmm. found. My my wife is three months pregnant at the time. Um, Two, three months later, we now find one more that's as big as the three of them or as bright as the three of, of the two other ones, as Santa and Xena. And that one is, of course, we found it day after Easter, so we call that one Easter Bunny. Easter Bunny. So suddenly, usually, as I said before about about, about Quarwar, we, we spend incredible efforts to get these scientific papers out as fast as possible. We suddenly had the three biggest, most interesting discoveries we had ever made all stacked on top of each other and my wife is now six months pregnant. Um, <laughs> and I'm about, I'm scheduled to take family leave starting in July to mm-hmm. take six months off to, to stay with my, my baby daughter who's on her way. Um, these things did not actually all compute, but I, was, I, I could not figure out how this was all going to work. And I somehow in my head thought, it's okay, I'll, I'll make it all work out. It'll, it'll somehow be okay. Talk about what happened when somebody else uh, found uh, your objects, because they the, this whole there's a whole detective story. There's there's a there's a whole out of nowhere uh, detective story and international intrigue uh, that you would just never expect to be associated with this story, and yet it was there. It was it was it was uh, 21 days after my daughter was born. Mm-hmm. Um, she was she was born about a week earlier than I had calculated in all my meticulous calculations of when she was going to come, which of course you can't really do that very well, so that's not surprising. You were expending a lot of your scientific expertise (laughs) creating pie charts and graphs on... I did. (laughs) I have have my, my favorite, I still have this beautiful chart of uh, of every moment when she slept and was awake and was happy and was sad and when she ate um, for her first about four months of life. And it's it's fascinating because you can see you can see her change. You can see when she moved from not acknowledging day and night to mostly sleeping through the nights. What as her you can see as her feeding space apart. Uh, you can see um, you can see this particular day, the twenty second day of her life. You can see her cry the entire day, um, and I think she cried the entire day because that was the first day I I left home and had to go into my office. And I, I, I left home and had to go into my office because I got an email that said, hey, somebody just discovered Santa, which is something that I always knew would happen, could happen. Is Scooped. That, yeah, you could, you, if you are, if there's always that possibility that you don't write your papers fast enough and somebody does it. I was so close because <laughs> I, was, I was within a day <laughs> of finishing my paper on Santa and announcing Santa because I wanted to get it done before my daughter was born. But then she came a week earlier than I had planned on, and I didn't get the paper out that day. I was going to finish it the day she was born, and it didn't happen. Science history has it changed. Is, it is. I, I blame her for this one. Um, but it's it's a it's a perfectly legitimate thing. They had found it. They had found it only uh, a day before. They did not feel the need to try to write a scientific paper about it. They just simply announced it to the world. They had found this thing. They also announced it was twice the size of Pluto, which we knew it wasn't. Um, so it, I mean, it, it, it. I felt like I had been 
punched in the gut. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my one of my big discoveries was suddenly scooped and was no longer my discovery. And uh, the other interesting thing is that is that we had already posted preliminary announcement that we were going to make an announcement. We had mm-hmm. we had posted a title for a talk we were going to give in a month, um, where we were going to announce the existence of this object. And a couple of astronomers and, and people in the press caught on that these were the same objects, that we were going to announce it, and they scooped us on it. And they, the, you know, they think, ooh, this is going to be good. There's going to be an astronomical cat fight. So they started saying, oh, it's a big dispute now. The astronomers don't know who's discovering. So I had to quick write, you know, I put up a big website saying, no, no, no. This is the way science works. They announced it first. I, I would have preferred that they had done it by writing a scientific paper first, but that's only my preference. It's not mm-hmm. required. They announced it first. They are the discoverers. And then I told everybody what we knew. It has a moon around it. It's a third the mass of, uh, of Pluto. Um, here's its orbit, all these other things. But they are the discoverers. And I, I wrote a nice email to the discoverers saying, hey, you know, as the discoverers, you guys get to name it. Let me know when you come up with a name because we'll, we'll, ma- we'll name the moon something that kind of goes with your name of the, of, the, of the object itself. And by the way, it's only a third the size of Pluto. It's not twice the size of Pluto and congratulations and and you know so I was I was unhappy with myself and felt horrible about it but that's the way science works and I'm still glad science works that way because otherwise there would be no pressure for me to go fast and I need that pressure everybody needs that pressure I still wish they had written the paper they should have had the felt the pressure to have done science instead of just make an announcement but that's I can't control that part well it turned out that uh, their science uh, involved uh, the the use of that great scientific research tool, Google. Yeah, so this is a part that that uh, uh, I I still to this day find sort of shocking, and I still m- wish I knew exactly what happened. But as as it turned out, well, the only thing I I, I realized on that next day is that um, although I didn't think they had done it, I realized that. When we had made the announcement of our talk, we had used the, the name of the object that our computer database spit out, which is uh, K40506A, which merely tells you the day that the object was discovered, and it's a K for Kuiper Belt. It turns out you could use that name and a little sleuthing to find out where the object was. And the sleuthing involved looking at a database that we didn't even know existed. The database was run by an astronomer who had built the camera for a telescope in South America that we were using to track Santa and Xena and Easter Bunny. And as we, as we tracked Santa and took new pictures of it, where we pointed went into the database. Usually that's not a problem. I, nobody could think of any reason why that would be something that shouldn't just be a publicly accessible database, except if you know that Mike Brown is looking for planets and you see that he's been using this telescope, and you see there's an object named K40506A, and you see his announcement that he's going to announce the largest new Kuiper Belt object, and you see that it is pointing here, and then here, and then here, and then here, you know everything you need to know. You can go find that object now because you know where the telescope's been pointing. Now, their claim is, well, we, we won't even get to that part yet because I didn't, think, I didn't think anything of it except what I thought was, oh, no, uh, Easter Bunny and Xena are in that same database. It's not going to take very long before somebody figures out that there are these other two objects that haven't yet been scooped that they can get out of that database. And in fact, it took about 12 hours. Um, So by the time I woke up the next morning, somebody had posted online 
the data from the database saying, look, there are more of them. And so we were required to, with no planning, uh, do a international press conference late on a Friday after the last Friday afternoon in July, announcing the existence of, of Xena and of Easter Bunny, and also talking a little bit about Santa. So l the last afternoon in July, of course, last Friday afternoon in July is is the perfect place to have a press release and a press conference. You know, saying that you have stopped beating your wife or something <laughs> like that. This is this is where things go to be buried forever and ever. Um, so it didn't, it didn't actually make as much of a splash as, as it might have right then. But you can't say that you just found something bigger than Pluto without everybody eventually catching on that there's something going on out there. When you, you, when, once you had uh, made this announcement, you, you started looking at some of the logs for this database. Yeah, we, 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 we were really busy as soon as that mm -hmm. happened. Cause and you were busy, too. You were, well, you're a, my you're daughter is now 23 days old. Um, that 22nd day is the day that she cried. She cried the whole time because I left to go do a press conference, and I was possibly a little stressed. Um, yeah, I, I can you're go back and look at my... You're sleep-deprived. <laughs> you, you can't... I was well, a wreck. You, you were putting cat kibble in the washer, yeah, cat litter in the washer. I was, it was, you know, I, no different than any other uh, father with a 22-day-old, um, except sure. that I suddenly had to do interviews and appear in, in on Good Morning America and, and all these other crazy things that you're just not prepared for. Although the, the Good Morning America turned out okay because... They wanted to film it at 2 in the morning and wanted to know if there was any chance I'd be willing to get up at 2 in the morning and come down to their studios. I was like, sure, I'm up at 2 in the morning anyway. <laughs> that makes no difference to me at all. We don't do day and night in my house these days. <laughs> so that worked out okay. And in all of this, I still didn't really think very much about the, the, the Spanish group that had, uh, that had made the discovery of Santa until I got an email from the astronomer who kept the database in Ohio. And he said, um, I've got something to tell you. He said, you know... I was looking at that database and I realized it was my database. I didn't even realize it was mine that was the problem and I fixed it, so that won't happen again. But in looking at it, I realized that before the announcement, the, the, the announcement of the discovery of, of Santa, there were a couple of strange accesses to the database and they all came from these addresses. And we traced the IP address back and it traced it not only back to Spain, which is where the astronomers were, and it traced not only back to the institute where those astronomies were, but because I had been um, corresponding with those astronomers, I had their actual IP addresses of their computers that they sent emails from. And it came from their computers. Their computers had accessed that database the day before they made their announcement of a discovery. They, at this point, my mind immediately... Uh, is fairly convinced of that I know what happened. Um, I sent them an email saying, hey, by the way, we now know you did this. Uh, if you are willing to confess and just say, yeah, we did, we shouldn't have done it, this was bad, I'll be willing to say, gee, isn't science a strange competitive place and we'll let bygones be bygones. Um, but they didn't, they instead doubled down and said, actually, this is all your fault. You are evil for uh, hiding all these things that you find, uh, and we would do it again. And uh, to which I was, my jaw just dropped. Their, their, their current claim, by the way, just to, to, to get it clear, is that they did legitimately discover Santa, and it was only by chance the very next day 
they happened to find that database, but it was merely a coincidence. Uh, that's the kind of coincidence. Uh. <laughs> yeah, as I, I remember telling this to my, my wife at the time, you know, so first off, they, they, they never admitted to using the database until their fingerprints were shown on it, and then they made up a fairly implausible sounding story that could never be proved one way or the other. And I was like, I said, look, Diane, you know, I, I have watched enough law and order to understand exactly what that means. We, we all know that that's what the criminals always do when they're, when they're faced with it. But in the end, I will never know, I think, exactly what happened. There is always this ever so slight off chance that they really did do it. They really made this discovery um, and then got slammed by, uh, by, by someone for doing it. The question rapidly arose, what exactly did they discover? Was it a planet? And that brings up a, another question, which, it, which you point out had never really been uh, specifically discussed, which is what exactly is a planet? Yeah, so, so they, they only, this is actually a, a funny part of the story, which is they, they only discovered Santa, which is mm -hmm. a third the, third the mass of, of Pluto. Um, nobody anywhere said, oh, so it's a planet, right? Mm -hmm. No, not at all. However, when we found Xena, which is about the size of Pluto, we thought it was bigger, quite a bit bigger at the time. It's actually, like everything else, its size has come down, and now it, it is close to being uh, a Pluto twin, as far as we can tell. Um, but when we found something bigger, then you have to answer that question. You, you no longer have to ask, answer the question about Pluto. Uh, you have to answer the question about, about Xena. Is Xena a planet or is Xena not a planet? Easter Bunny, it turned out to be just a little bit smaller than Pluto. Nobody cared about Easter Bunny. It's smaller than Pluto, so who cares? Um, <laughs> but if it's bigger than Pluto, even by a little bit, or we think it is by a little bit, you have to care all of a sudden. So that precipitated this year-long debate uh, and, and astronomical soul-searching about what is and what is not a planet. And they had to form the uh, AES, is it? IAU. IAU had to form a secret committee. They had to meet in secret. They, I, I, it's a secret squirrel, and you have to spell this S-E-E-K-R-I-T. They were secret. <laughs> they were that secret. <laughs> they were that secret. They, but they, they, this was only their third committee was mm -hmm. secret. Their first committee already existed. They, they conveniently, they actually had a committee in place to talk about planets, not because anyone cared about the solar system at that point, but because we were finding planets around other stars. Mm -hmm. And the question wasn't how small can a planet be? The question was how big can a planet be? When is it a planet and when is it a star? And so a committee was already in place for that. So they voted and their vote was, well, we, we don't really know and we don't really want to think about the solar system very much. So we're just going to say Pluto's a planet and anything bigger than Pluto is a planet too. And the IAU looked at their report and said, yeah, we don't really like that. So they disbanded that committee. They formed a new committee, um, which did the best possible thing a committee could do, which is to form a subcommittee. Um, and that <laughs> subcommittee made a report, um, which was, I, I, I can't remember what this one said. The subcommittee, I believe, came to a similar conclusion that Pluto was a planet and anything bigger was a planet too. Um, but then the IAU decided that the committee didn't have the right to let the subcommittee make the decision. So the committee was disbanded. They, then they fi formed their final secret committee. No one was supposed to know who was on it. Um, and nobody was supposed to know even that they existed or that they were discussing it. And they finally came out uh, on the day of the, once every three years, the International Astronomical Union has their big uh, meeting. And on the first day of that big meeting, they came out with their big announcement. Here is our definition 
of the word planet. There will be a vote on it at the end, but we, we have already determined everybody's in agreement, so this is just the way it's going to be. Now, they had a really unusual definition of planet. It seems so bizarre. Can you... They, they, had, they had so many bizarre things going on. Um, <laughs> the first one, um, it, it's funny, the first, the first bizarre part of it um, is the one that got... That, that doesn't sound as bizarre until you think about it pretty hard. Um, their first bizarre aspect was that they, they first said that anything that goes around the sun that is round is a planet. And, and round, round because it, it is true that as, you, as an object gets bigger and bigger or as you pile more and more rocks on it, um, it, it eventually gets enough gravity that it pulls itself into a round shape. And that happens with fairly small Kuiper Belt objects. You only have to be about 300 miles across in the Kuiper Belt to be round. So there are, there are hundreds, probably hundreds of round Kuiper Belt objects. One round asteroid series, one almost round asteroid Vesta that everybody would be arguing about. So the, the International Astronomical Union said all those things are planets. <laughs> so now which, the solar system has hundreds of planets. Hundreds of planets, <laughs> um, which is the first time, I think, in human history that anyone ever tried to make up a definition just purely by fiat. I mean, where, where does this crazy idea that, that, that anything round is a planet come from? Well, it could only come from the mind of, of scientists, I think, semi-desperate to keep Pluto. I, I think that culturally, I mean, I'm pretty sure that never in the history of humanity until that moment could you have ever gone on the streets and asked somebody what a planet is, and they would have said, well, I think it's anything that goes around the sun and is in hydrostatic equilibrium, mm -hmm. which is really the way the astronomers said it. Um, culturally, I'm pretty sure that if you ask people what planets were, and you said, don't tell me the names of any of them, I don't care what you think are planets, I just want you to tell me what a planet is, I think you would come up with a description sort of like all of the large dominant objects going around the sun are planets. And everybody knows about asteroids. Those aren't planets. They're all tiny little things. That's, that's Krypton. That's, those are just Krypton. Um, so astronomers first off said uh, everything round is a planet. doesn't matter where it is in space. If it's round and going around the sun, it's a planet. To which I raise my hand and I say, um, the moon's round. And they say, oh, no, 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 the moon is round because it's going around the Earth. And I say, wait, wait a minute, you just said it doesn't matter where it is in the solar system. Uh, if it's round, it's a planet. They say, well, no, but moons aren't planets. That's crazy. And then they said, oh, yeah, but by the way, Pluto's moon, Charon, is a planet, even though it's smaller. It's, it's probably the, the 87th smallest object, largest object in the solar system. It would be the 13th planet by this initial proposal. And I said, um, you just said that, moons aren't planets. They're like, oh, no, no, but Charon is special. Because when Pluto and Charon orbit, they don't, it's not that Charon orbits Pluto. It actually orbits their center of mass, and their center of mass is slightly outside of Pluto. <laughs> so yeah, that suddenly changes everything, to which my very favorite um, uh, moment after that was, was an astronomer at UC Santa Cruz, Greg Laughlin, um, wrote this beautiful press release uh, announcing the, um, the moment in time when the moon would become a planet because the moon is moving further away from the earth and the moon eventually will have a center, the moon and earth will have a center of mass outside the earth, at which point it will instantly become a planet in, in, <laughs> in good standing, only in a few hundred million years, and, and he was looking forward to that moment. So it was, it was 
not only do I think the idea of saying everything in hydrostatic equilibrium is a planet, not only do I think that's crazy, but their, their definition was so internally inconsistent that it was, it, was, it was simply pure classification. Saying mm -hmm. that everything is round as a planet except for moons, except for Sharon because it's got this extra special case is just crazy. Mm -hmm. um, so because of that craziness, um, the astronomers who had been told basically that they were to go along with this because our super secret committee has insisted that this is going to be the definition, astronomers revolted um, seeing such nonsense. And uh, I, I didn't think it would ever happen. I didn't mm -hmm. think the astronomers would do it. And I still don't think the astronomers would have revolted so strongly if the secret committee re definition hadn't been so ridiculous. <laughs> I think if they had actually come out with a semi-reasonable sounding definition, everyone would have said, well, I don't like it that much, but at least it's internally consistent and it's okay. But when you go that crazy um, just to keep Pluto as a planet, uh, everybody revolted and said, you know what? We have all thought that Pluto should not be a planet for a long time. Let's just do this. So you found yourself at 5 o'clock in the morning. I, was, I wasn't there at the meeting in mm. Prague where all this happened because I, I, I knew that at this meeting, one of two things was going to happen. Either, either I was going to be declared the discoverer of the 10th planet or maybe 15 planets if all the round things were planets. Um, I would either be the only living planet discoverer or the person in human history who had discovered the most planets or I would ha be the guy who once had a planet but is now taken away from him. Um, and I thought, you know, everybody has heard me talking about this for the past year. Everybody knows my opinions and my arguments. Actually going there to give them in person does not help anything. So I'm not going to go. So I went on vacation with my family um, to, a, to a, a little island in the, the San Juan Islands um, as far away as I could possibly be and, and watched this unfold in the newspapers and, and on the web. Um, but I didn't stay on vacation long enough. So by the time they had their final vote, I was back in Pasadena. And uh, I, I came down early in the morning because they were in Prague. So I was, had to do it on Prague time. Came down at 5 in the morning to, to set up uh, a big press venue here at Caltech for, so all the press could watch the debate and, uh, and get the commentary and, and see what would happen. You know, one of the things that strikes me about science when I read this book in, in terms of the language and the way you write about it is the importance of, of language in science. And I'm thinking, uh, especially in terms of writing about it, analogy and metaphor. That's the, that's the, they're the, the cruxes upon which good scientific it, understanding and writing turns. It I, it, it's the way we think, mm -hmm. I think. I mean, there are people, and, and they, they exist on this campus in abundance. There are people who really, truly think mathematically. Their brains just think in equations. Um, I, most people aren't, and I'm not. Mm -hmm. I, I think in terms of analogy and concept, and then if I need to, I will sit down and and work out the the, the math and the physics that the the analogy and the concept are are describing. But my brain thinks by these analogies and concepts, and and I think that being able to describe those and having people have the right concepts and analogies in their mind is is the best way to teach them about the actual science. Um, People, people, most people don't learn a lot by looking at equations, um, but they really do by, by hearing stories and, and analogies. And I think the, the stories in your book, 
you, you do a great job creating characters, both yourself and, the, and your wife and the people around you. I'd like you to talk about, as a scientist, it's one thing to write about your science, and you have to be precise and you have to be, you know, clear. Writing about people is not so, is not the same thing, is it? And, I, and I'll tell you, writing about your wife is actually potentially very dangerous. Um, <laughs> she, she uh, I asked her ahead of time if she wanted to read read the book and and uh, have me take out any sections that she was uncomfortable with. And she said, no, 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 go ahead, write. I, it's, it's okay. Um, she still can't get herself to actually read the book, though. Um, it, it, it worries her. But it's... It, it's an interesting question. I actually haven't thought about that very much about about characters and how to write about characters, um, and and I'm not sure that I could do it for some arbitrary person I don't know very well. It's easy to write about me as a character because I just write and that's me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife is easy because she's her and I can write about her. My daughter is you know uh, between zero and three at the time, so the, they're 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 fairly easy characters to write about because they're they're all equally crazy in their own crazy three year old ways. But I don't I don't know I've I have never it's it is an unusual thing for me to have done. I've not for for me unusual for me. It's not something you do in scientific papers. It's not something you even do in in popular level science articles or, mm-hmm. or books. Um, so I'm I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed it. I wasn't I, it was something that I wasn't I wasn't sure how it was going to work out, but it seems okay. It's I think one of the things you do well is to you're pretty even-handed with yourself, and, and so you kind of give yourself a hard time. <laughs> well, this, this is in the character of my wife, who, who in, in fact, she's in real help. life, in real life, gives me a hard time. No, I mean she's she's great for staying grounded because uh, you know there's this this moment when it's uh, in the book it sounds thoroughly ridiculous because like in real life it was thoroughly ridiculous where I saw the first sonogram of my child to be and. They're very specific-looking little thing. These sonograms—they sort of have this weird, distorted perspective caused by the the, the wand that they're using, and mm-hmm. the and they're also on that on they're on this thermal paper, so they're kind of reddish tint. When I saw it, the very first thing that I thought um, was, "Oh my gosh, this looks exactly like the the." Um, the Russian Venera probe that landed on the surface of Venus and took these weird periscope pictures with the same tint. And I said this to my wife, who just looks at me like, you are just insane, which which is what she says to me a lot of the times when I, you know, these are the analogies that I come up with, um, which are quirky and peculiar to some crazy planetary scientist with these experiences. But she's very good at uh, at, at reminding me that the rest of the world is actually not quite like this. And you remind us that science is more like the rest of the world than we expect it to be. And I think that's the the real beauty of this book. I, I, I think, well, it's harder for me to say because I probably don't know what the rest of the world is like quite as much. Um, but, uh, but, I, but I feel like, you know, I, I have friends who are scientists. Um, most of my friends are scientists and their families. And, and uh, they, most of them are you know, they all have their scientific geeky quirks about them, as as uh, as do I. But, you know, most of them are just normal people, too. And they have lives and families, and, and uh, it influences all of it. I've been speaking with Mike Brown. His new book is How I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming. Thank you for joining me, Mike. Oh, it's been my pleasure. 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.